school teacher, I used to um, have a very powerful voice, most especially when the kids were behaving badly, though. Um, but I've lost it. So thank you, Lord, for technology. So yeah, um, it really feels like the Lord has been speaking to us quite specifically as a congregation over the last couple of weeks and months. So I want to continue to just pick up on some of the things which I feel the Lord is wanting to relay in us, in our foundations. Um, So last week we started a a sermon series. This week is part two. Wow. It's not often um, we have a part two in a sermon series in Josh Chen. But this morning is part two, and we're going through the book of Romans. Um, Last week, we just did chapter one. This week, we're going to be doing chapter two, three, four, and a bit of five. So fasten your seatbelts. We're going to be picking up on some key themes through the book and uh, really unpacking that and then applying it to our own lives. And so the the real... uh, topic or the theme that we're picking up on this morning is what it means to be justified by faith, what it means to be justified by faith. Now, what's what's very important about the topic of justification by faith is that it is for for unbelievers, but it's an incredibly important um, foundation to hold on to as believers, because there's this uh, horrible tendency that we have as Christians to start by faith, by grace, and then drift into works. And something very significant happens in our relationship with God when we drift from faith to works. Um, and, and, and some of the fruits that you'll notice in your life if you drift from trusting in Jesus to trusting in yourself is the first thing you'll lose is joy. You'll lose joy. Joy comes from a revelation of God's grace. When you lose sight of God's grace, you'll lose your joy. The second thing you'll lose, not necessarily in this order, is you'll lose love for God. Our love for God is inspired by the cross of Jesus Christ. When we lose sight of the cross, when we lose sight of grace, you'll lose your first love. And so I'm really trusting this morning as we relook at what it means to be saved by grace, you'll find your joy if you've lost it. And you'll find your love if you've lost it. Sound cool? Sounds like something worth investigating. I've often joked that there's a comparison between the Christian walk and the boom and bust cycle that happens in global economics. If you're an economics student, you're paying rapt attention right now. If you're a humanities student like myself, you're nodding off. (laughs) But in economics... um, The boom and bust cycle works like this. Your currency becomes, it starts out strong. And then over time, your currency gets overvalued. And so it's actually worth less than everybody thinks it is. And that's called inflation. But the market has a way of adjusting itself. And so at some point, everybody realizes that the currency is overvalued. And then you have a crash. You have an economic crash. And it actually recalibrates itself to the true value of your currency. Something similar happens with our our faith. We start out with Jesus knowing I'm a sinner, that I'm powerless to save myself, 
that there's nothing good in me that could ever save myself. But give yourself a few years following Christ and you begin to forget that because you start to become more holy. And, and suddenly you start to overvalue the currency of your, <laughs> of your ability to do good. And it inevitably it leads to a crash. You have a failure in your life. Some sin pops its head up again. And you think, what on earth has happened to me? How did this happen? You know, because I'm a good person. Where did this come from? And you suddenly realize, I'm not a good person. Jesus in me is what makes me good. The righteousness of Christ is the confidence that I stand on. And I've noticed there's a bit of a boom and bust cycle that happens in my own walk with Christ. And I've learned to see it as a good thing. Brings me back to grace. Amen? So last week, chapter 1, we looked at uh, the, the human condition. That's how I summarize it. Is our AV working this morning? Are we going to revive? Not working. Okay. We looked at um, chapter 1, which if I had to summarize, and people might give different summaries, but if I had to summarize it, it was that verse which said that uh, humans, humanity has exchanged the Creator for created things. They stopped worshipping the Creator and started worshipping the things that God has made. Good things, like nature and sports and you know, marriage and relationships and having children and all these good things. But stopped worshipping the Creator and made idols for themselves. And that was where all the trouble started. And we spoke about God's judgment of sin taking two forms. God's judgment of sin... Um, dark hearts, hearts that were darkened, hearts that were given over to moral depravity so that things are done which should never be done. And, and dim minds. And I explained it's not that people became stupid. It means that our thinking became futile, which means that you can have a, a wealth of knowledge but not be able to answer the most important questions about life. Like, why am I here? Where do I come from? Where do I go when I die? Those are the ultimate questions of life. And you can have libraries of knowledge, but actually be futile in your thinking. How, um, how can I be made right with God? And so, in uh, chapter 2, I mentioned that um, in chapter 1, Paul sets a bit of a rhetorical trap for his Jewish audience. And he starts by saying things which they would all agree on. And they were all 100% lock, stop, lock stock, and in, in agreement that the Gentiles were wicked. <laughs> and so he got a lot of amens when he was preaching that part of his sermon. And he goes into great detail about the, the wickedness of the Gentiles and how God's given them over in their sin to depravity. And then he turns his guns around. And in chapter 2, he starts talking about the fact that actually it's not just the Gentiles that are wicked. The Jews are just as wicked. Even though they've been given the law, even though they've been given circumcision, um, he'll go on to say in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And so he's speaking to his Jewish audience and saying, You, you need to come off your high horse. Because you do the same things. And they had been deceiving themselves into thinking that they were more holy or more righteous than the Gentiles 
because they had been given the law. And they had been given the law. But Paul goes on to say, what shall we, con- verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we Jews have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Verse 10, very, very famous passage. There is no one righteous, not even one. And so Paul is undermining two key deceptions which are just as prevalent today as they were back then. The first one is this idea that you know humans are essentially good people that sometimes do bad things. Humans are good people, but we, do, we sometimes do bad things. That, that is not true. Humans are, are essentially evil, and we sometimes do good things. <laughs> That's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for every human. Because the Bible says not only do we do sin, we are held captive to the power of sin. Sin has a kind of power over us that Jesus needs to break the power of sin before you can be a holy person. He needs to break a stronghold of sin. You will compulsively keep on sinning despite your best intentions. The other uh, lie that he undermines is that humanity as a whole are good. It's just for a few bad apples that ruin it for the rest of us. And it sounds silly, but I think all of us fall victim to, to this kind of thinking every now and again. You know, if we could just round up all the bad people and put them in jail, the rest of us could live in peace. It's a sneaky deception, but it is deception. The Bible doesn't speak in those terms. The Bible speaks about rounding up all the bad people and putting them in jail, and that includes all of us, me included. And there have been several times in history where God's literally done that with Noah. He destroyed the whole planet. That was him, except for, 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 Noah, uh, for Noah and his family. Eight people on the whole planet. Um, and so those are two false assumptions to begin with that Paul at the beginning wants to undermine. Um, and he's got a tough task because he's talking about God's new plan for making people holy. And he's speaking to people who consider themselves to be experts on holiness. And so one of the things you'll find in Scripture that the people who, who find it hardest to come to Christ, and that's true today and it's true for us, people who find it hardest to come to Christ are the people who find it hardest to believe that I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. Isn't that ironic that God's mercy is as vast as the ocean, but the thing that keeps us from receiving His mercy is our inability to see our own sinfulness. It's profound eh? and sobering. And so Paul starts by, by saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of Christ or the glory of God. And then he goes on in, in verse 13 to talk about the law and the gospel. He contrasts and compares the law and the gospel. And again, Previously, when I started with last week, sometimes we miss the questions he's wrestling with because we're in such a different context. For us, we don't really feel like we need somebody to explain why the law isn't as helpful as the gospel because we didn't actually get saved into the law. It wasn't a part of our upbringing. But for them, it was an important question, and it does have some bearing on us. 
So he says um, in verse 19, this is very profound. If you ever wondered, why did God even give the law in the first place if it doesn't save people? Here's the answer. Verse 19 and 20. It's one of the answers. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. Every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Then it says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. And so the law had an incredibly important task of showing us what sin is. So that we can see sin as being sinful. If you think of the Ten Commandments, do you know how profound of an effect the Ten Commandments have had in shaping the morality of the entire world? That doesn't mean to say it makes people good, but it does help people to know at least what's wrong. Now, there's a world of difference between knowing what's wrong and doing what's right. We all know that. Just simply knowing what's right and what's wrong doesn't necessarily make me a good person. It just helps me to know when I'm failing at being a good person. And that's exactly what the scriptures say about the role of the law. The role of the law was vitally important then and it's still important today to help us to know what is right and what is wrong. But it's important to know what the law cannot do. The law cannot make you a good person. And many religions around the world try and make people good by giving them lots of laws Lots of rules, lots of instructions about what a good person does. But the problem is, and the scriptures tell us this, that will not make you a good person. It will just simply help you to know when you've done bad things. And so you can't be saved by adding on laws and multiplying laws and micromanaging people's lives about, you know, when is it sinful to do this or that or the next thing. And so the law played a vital role because the law shows us how much we need Jesus. How far we fall short and how badly we need a savior. Does that make sense? And that's crucially important. How badly we need a savior. I was going to show you a a little video clip. I'll I'll maybe forward it on to you a little bit later. But there's this one evangelist. His name is Ray, Ray Comfort. And one of the things he often does when he's trying to share the gospel with people is he'll say, So do you believe in heaven? They'll say, yeah. Like 99% of people believe there is such a a thing as heaven. Then you'll say, well, how do you you think you you can get there? What what does a person need to do to get there, to go there? And they say, well, you need to be a good person. And then he'll say, okay, well, are are you a good person? And obviously every single person, every single person says, yes, yeah, of course I am. And then he starts going through the Ten Commandments. He says, well, have you ever told a lie in your life? And the person's like, yeah, I mean, we, we all, I mean, from time to time, lie here and there. Well, the Bible says, you know, if you look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm just human after all, you know. I mean, we all, I mean, and then he just starts going, and by the time he gets to the end, to end of the Ten Commandments, he says, you know, so if God had to judge you, on Judgment Day, according to the Ten Commandments, are you guilty or innocent? And by that t- stage, the person's mouth is shut. And it's interesting, it actually says here, 
every mouth may be silenced. That's the purpose of the law. Because until you know actually how far you've fallen short of even the Ten Commandments, you won't see your need for a Savior. Does that make sense? The Bible paints this picture. It's almost like it is an analogy of this person in the ocean being drowned by the weight of their own sins and trying to fight to the surface by their own works keep myself afloat by my own good works, but it's like there's an inevitability about it that I'm going to eventually go under and be drowned. And God sent us a lifeline through Christ to pull us to safety. And so it's important to know this about the nature of sin, even for us as Christians. Don't forget how you were saved. You weren't saved by trying harder. You were saved by looking to Jesus. And him throwing you a lifeline. Otherwise you will once again find that sinking feeling of I'm drowning. And I I feel overwhelmed by my sinfulness. We need to remember that our power comes from Christ. Not from within. Does that make sense? And then like a good preacher. Paul at this point in chapter 4. He gives a sermon illustration. And he chooses his sermon illustration very carefully. And you're going to see the beauty and the wisdom in why he chooses Abraham for a sermon illustration. If your audience is Jews, to choose the person of Abraham for your sermon illustration is a masterstroke. Because Abraham was revered as being the father of their faith. And so the problem that the Jews were having with the gospel is it seemed new. And it seemed like some new kind of teaching that Paul was sneaking in here and leading people astray. And so he goes to Abraham, the very beginning. And he says, okay, well, let's talk about salvation by faith. And I'm going to start with Abraham. Can you see how sneaky that is? And so he uses two illustrations from Abraham to, to explain the nature of being saved by faith. In verse 21, chapter 4, verse 21. But, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. I'm actually in the wrong verse. I'm in the wrong verse. Verse, chapter 4, verse 3. Thankfully, the AV is having no trouble keeping up with me this morning. Chapter 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul is distinguishing between wages, which get paid to you as a salary, and righteousness that's credited to you as a gift. Now, what's interesting about this word credited, it sounds like a very modern word. And we all have a very good idea of what it looks like for somebody to credit my bank account. Am I there? I'm back. If somebody credits your account, it means they transfer some funds into your account. Right? It's a similar meaning. The word he's using there in Greek is logizomai. I reckon, count, charge with. 
Monies have been credited to my account by faith. Righteousness has been credited to my account by faith. And that's the word that's being used here. I'm just trying to make it modern so we can get an understanding of what he's talking about. So I had a debt. I had money that I owed to pay to somebody. And the Bible talks about my sin being like a debt that needs to be paid. And Christ, through his righteousness, credited my account with his righteousness. How? By faith. By faith. And so he's making his case that even Abraham was credited righteousness before the law because he trusted God to save him. He actually specifically trusted God to make good on the promise that he had made to Abraham. Verse 18, he uses another analogy to talk about salvation as being a gift. So I'm not sure if you know the story, but uh, I'll share it to you because, um, in case you don't. But Abraham and his wife um, were promised a child. God promised Abraham that he was going to give him a child. And they were both barren. Sarah was barren. She had a medical issue. And it says Abraham wasn't doing that great either. He said his body was as good as dead. He wasn't as young, wasn't as young as he used to be. Um, he'd lost his spunk. So they both, they both were, um, let's just say, past the age of childbearing. Is that more, more, more sensitive, more sensitive, more delicately, more delicately put? I'm quoting scripture, hey, so you can't hold it against me. Let's read it. Verse 18 to 22. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Okay, well, when you're a hundred, things happen. And that Sarah was also... Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Oh, you guys have caught up with me. Okay. That God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So, this slide is going to come very timely for us now because it would be helpful for you to see this and the next one. The Bible is comparing and contrasting Abraham's faith with our faith. And this has everything to do with salvation. And just to mention, this particular analogy has really helped me personally. So just pay attention. Even when I'm struggling with unbelief or I'm struggling at the fact that God can make me new, this analogy really helps me. He's contrasting, God promised Abraham that he would have a son. God, through the gospel, has promised that we would have new life through Christ. I know we all know that that's true, but some, day, some days it's hard to believe, isn't it? That, I, that God's going to make me a new creation. And you think, but God, 
It doesn't look that way when I look at my life. But he's promised. He's promised to make us new. New life in Christ. Abraham was powerless to make that promise happen. We are powerless to live up to God's standard of holiness. Abraham put his faith in God's power. We put our faith in the God who raised Christ up from the dead. And we believe that he raised Christ up from the dead. He can raise me too. To newness of life. God gave Abraham a son by a miracle. We are born again by a miracle of God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle what God has done in me. It's a miracle what God has done in you. And we dare not forget that. It's not a self-improvement message that we are preaching. It's a message of trust in Christ that he will make me new. And as I look back over my life, I can see he has. He's made me new. He's making me new. I'm not the same man I used to be. And so every now and then, when I get discouraged at how I'm doing, I remember Abraham. He was absolutely powerless to make that promise come true, and so am I. But I trust in the power of God. I trust in the power of God. Does that make sense? It's actually a beautiful sermon analogy, don't you think? And then in chapter 5. Hey, you, you didn't think we were going to get through so many chapters. Are we already on chapter 5 over here? <laughs> chapter 5. We're flying through the Gospels. Well, through the chapters anyway. Chapter 5 is a beautiful passage. And I would encourage you to spend a bit of time this week to just read this little passage. Because it is so incredibly beautiful. Because he's now talking about the fruit of faith. This is what our inheritance is as believers in Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have a peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Just keep that up there. Remember in the beginning I started by saying, when we have faith in Christ, in His righteousness, we have peace. When our, when our confidence, when our trust shifts from Christ to myself, I lose my peace. I lose my joy. And it speaks about His love being poured into my heart. By His Holy Spirit, His love is poured into my heart. That only happens by faith. When you put your trust in the wrong thing, it stops happening. You dry up. The reason why he mentions suffering here. Sometimes when you experience suffering in this life, you can, you can begin to doubt whether I have been made right with God. Because you think, well, surely if I've if got such a good relationship with God, if I've found favor with God, I wouldn't be suffering. But Paul's saying, no, no. Even our suffering is for our good. Even our suffering produces good things in our lives because God loves us and He's working for our good even in the suffering. Does that make sense? 
This is a trap that many new believers and some older believers fall into, that when they start experiencing difficulties and hardships in their life, they think, well, maybe, maybe nothing actually happened when I got saved because my life just seems to be still filled with bad things and suffering and surely I wouldn't be suffering these things if God loved me. That's why he's mentioning this specifically here. And then he contrasts, well, I'm contrasting. Uh, when we put our trust in ourselves, we feel disqualified from God's love. We feel insecure and separated from God. But when our faith is in Christ, we have peace with God and we are secure in His love for us. One of the ways you can know that your faith is shifted from Christ to my own righteousness is that I have an inconsistent walk with God. I feel like today I'm saved. Yesterday I wasn't, but today I had a good day. And so I'm feel, I feel saved today. And then tomorrow happen, happens and something bad happens and I lose, I, I, I fail and I disappoint myself and I disappoint God and I don't feel saved today. I don't feel peace with God today. I don't feel like He loves me today. That's, that's a sign and a symptom of my faith being in the wrong thing. My faith goes beyond me. It's in Christ. It's in His righteousness. And so when I fail, I can come before God and I can ask for His forgiveness. And instantly, I don't have to atone for my sin. I don't have to put myself in the naughty corner. I can trust in the righteousness of Christ. Does that make sense? And it produces children of God who are secure in Christ by faith. It's very important where my anchor is. And I'm saying this to you even as believers because like I mentioned before, you can start in grace, but subtly in your heart, your, your trust shifts from Christ to me. It's a subtle thing. And you'll realize it when you get very disappointed in yourself when you fail. And then I have to say, well, why is that a shock to me? Right? Because I'm not the one I'm trusting in. It's Christ. It's in, in His righteousness that I'm trusting. And so I would love to pray with us now.